Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is Paul Ollinger, your host, but you knew that, didn't you? This week's guest, ladies and gentlemen, is Inbal Ariely, Israeli entrepreneur and author of the new book, Chutzpah, Why Israel is a Hub of Innovation and Entrepreneurship. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, before I get started with the conversation, I want to let you know that this week's episode is brought to you by my relatively new comedy EP, Alive on the Upper West Side, which is available now on iTunes, Apple Music, Spotify, and Amazon. What's an EP, you ask? Well, I'll tell you. It's a comedy album designed specifically for busy professionals or non-professionals who don't have a full hour to listen to comedy. So I pack an hour's worth of laughs into just under 30 minutes. It's not that I don't have an hour of material. I do, kind of. But I didn't record it all. Anyway, so it's 30 minutes of laughs. You get an hour's worth of fantastic jokes in just 30 minutes. It's the seven-minute abs for your funny bone. Google Alive on the Upper West Side, and you will find my jokes. This week's guest, Inbal Ariely, Israeli entrepreneur and author of the new book, Chutzpah, Why Israel is a Hub of Innovation and Entrepreneurship. Why are we talking to her? Because this show isn't about innovation or entrepreneurship. Well, I'll tell you, for one and two, I'm fascinated with Israel, and I've always been impressed by the Israelis that I've met. Very interesting people. More importantly to me, however, was that Inbal's book thesis ties the unique way Israeli kids are raised to entrepreneurial success. And think about this. Israeli kids grow up in a world of great uncertainty and with imminent threats of war and terrorism. The day we recorded this, missiles were being lobbed twixt and tween Israel and her neighbors. And this is just part of the everyday life for Israeli children growing up. They are independent yet group-minded. They know that when they turn 18, they will have to serve or they will get to serve in the Israeli Defense Force, a.k.a. IDF. Their parents don't hover over them, obsess over their every mistake, or give them trophies when they play on losing teams. So it's very different than the way our children are being raised here in the States. North America, Canada, if you're listening from Canada, hello. I'm very happy you're here. Tell all your friends about it, won't you? But mostly I just wanted to talk to Inbal because I thought maybe I could learn something about my own values by learning about the values of others. And holy shit, that's kind of profound. Today is your moment of profundity. I love that word. And after learning about how tough Israeli kids are, I decided that it's time for me to stop cutting the crusts off my children's PBJs. That's my resolution for the week. So ladies and gentlemen, enjoy this conversation with Inbal Ariely. Is making a change, is really changing something in the world. And that's more important to them. So success would be more about creating that change than, I don't know, living in a huge mansion with a Ferrari and a jet. So status comes from accomplishment more so than it does from the money itself. Exactly. Status would come from accomplishments. You also need to remember, in a sense, we all served in the military together. Mm -hmm. And the military is a melting pot of the entire Israeli society. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. Inbal Ariely, welcome to Crazy Money and Shalom. Hi, Paul. Nice to be here. Inbal, your new book is called Chutzpah, Why Israel is a Hub of Innovation and Entrepreneurship. So for my mostly American and presumably mostly Goyim audience, can you please define chutzpah? <laughs> sure. So chutzpah has actually several meanings. 
And in Hebrew, actually, and for most Israelis, it would be a relatively negative connotation of someone who is... Uh, really? Yes, yes, surprisingly to the American audience. Chutzpah in Hebrew is actually impoliteness, okay? Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, but in English and in other languages, it actually created a, a more positive meaning of people who are, you know, have a lot of ambitions and are, are doing just a little bit of outside of or extended of what they're expected to do and have this positive, I would say, again, motivation, okay? And it's not connected in any way to the meaning that it has in Hebrew. And that's what the book is about. It's about um, these entrepreneurial soft skills of stepping out of your comfort zone, of doing more than you're expected to do, of challenging yourself. So the title was chosen to be interpreted with the non-Hebrew interpretation of chutzpah. Yes. So the book is coming out, well, came out. Uh, I'm not even used to say it's, it already came out. It came out last week in the U.S. by Harper Business. It's already being translated into several other foreign languages and also to Hebrew. But the main audience of the book are non-Israelis. I and mean, I think they would enjoy the book the most. So we talk about grit a lot. And one of the main thesis of your uh, thesis, theses of your book is that the way you raise your children in Israel prepares them uniquely for a culture of innovation and entrepreneurship. So in the way you're interpreting chutzpah here, is this the same thing that we talk about as being grit in our children? Well, yes, but not only that. I would say a holistic approach into the soft skills or the muscles, okay, that we all actually, I think, I believe, we're all born with. It's just a matter of practice. So how much attention we give to them and how much we train them. And in Israel, my thesis is, like you said, that this training actually starts from a very, very young age, as young as two or three, and kind of is fostered throughout the childhood of our kids here in Israel until the, if you want, the, the peak, which is the, the Israeli military. All right, we'll talk about all these things, military, the Israeli upbringing and such. But first, let's talk about what the startup culture, the economic innovation culture looks like in Israel today. What are some of the technological innovations that have come out of Israel? That's a great question. Um, let me start with, with some statistics just to kind of, you know, create a baseline for everyone. So Israel of 2019 is, well, first, you know what? Do you know how much, what's the population of Israel? Just so we have like a scale. Why did you ask me this? I'm going to say <laughs> six million. A little more. So almost nine million. Okay. Um, nine, nine million citizens living in Israel. It's a tiny country. It's smaller than New Jersey in size. <laughs> so it's really a tiny country that, you know, somehow makes a lot of noise in the world. But it's, mm. it's we have to remember it's a tiny country. So with only nine, peop uh, nine million people in uh, population, Israel of 2019 is ranked as the country with the highest concentration of startups per capita in the world. So that's one thing to remember. Almost uh, one startup for every 1,800 people. So the innovation, the ecosystem, the tech ecosystem is very much flourishing here in Israel. Second interesting data point is Israel of 2019 attracts more venture capital per capita than any other country in the world. So in a sense, if you're a startup entrepreneur, a founder, in a sense, the best way to start your startup is in Israel, because actually, mostly foreign investors, so 85% of that funding comes from foreign investors that have very high confidence in the Israeli tech space. 
based on its past accomplishments, but also based on the potential that they see in it. Why is that? What's unique about Israel? What's unique about the tech ecosystem in, in Israel actually relates, of course, to the book, and that's the human capital. And it's a combination. It's not just that. But there is a very well-developed technological, I would say, background here in Israel, which is complemented with very strong entrepreneurial skills and execution skills. And with the fact that, like we said before, Israel is a tiny country, so it's a tiny market and it's a Hebrew speaking market. So it's actually, in a sense, a not relevant market. So most Israeli founders, almost 100% of them, when they start their startups, bringing that deep innovation capabilities into the technologies that they're developing, they're addressing global markets overseas, mainly the U.S., and hence also the connection between the foreign investors, mostly from the U.S., and the Israeli tech space. And, and that has created and still is a very mature, developed, flourishing ecosystem, which is based on these two main components, deep technological understanding and capabilities, together with very strong soft skills of entrepreneurship. And real quickly, let's talk about some of the products that have come out of mm -hmm. Israel that we would know about. Well, maybe let's start with the USB flash drive that we've mm -hmm. all used. Mm -hmm. That's uh, an Israeli um, invention and came out of the country, Waze, which I guess most of the people hearing us are maybe in the car using Waze as we speak. Waze was an Israeli company, was acquired by Google um, in a relatively large acquisition here in Israel. If we're talking about cars, Mobileye, the computer vision cameras that we have, most of us have in our cars now, are also an Israeli technology. Fiverr, relatively known to the U.S. market, uh, the marketplace for gigs, the gig economy, that's an mm -hmm. Israeli company. Although, again, they're almost not active in Israel business-wise because their markets are overseas, but they're an Israeli company and they have most of their people here. Checkpoint and other Israeli cyber companies. And, and the list goes on and on and on. So Waze, maybe the most important tool for anybody who lives in a traffic congested city like Atlanta, where I where I mm -hmm. live, and Los yeah. Angeles, where I have lived for a long time. Really important. So you've sold me on the quality of the products that come out of Israel. Let's get down to your real theory here. How does the way that you raise children in Israel make them better prepared for life as innovators and entrepreneurs? Great. So when you ask people about, you know, what's the main differentiator here in Israel, what's special in Israel that actually creates that environment, you would typically get the answer. You want to guess what that is? Uh, hummus. Hummus. Does hummus. hummus contribute? Yes. Totally. Hummus is, is a great way of, you know, spending your day uh, when you don't have funding uh, at a startup. <laughs> 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 no, so the, the main differentiator and the main reason people actually mention is the military. Israel is known for its advanced military. Mm -hmm. We talked about scale before or lack of scale. And Israel's military is also a relatively small military compared to the challenges that it's facing. And for, for many years, for decades, as a necessity, the military had to develop very, I would say, innovative technologies to overcome the scale disadvantage. So that is the main reason that is typically mentioned. And that is true, and I'm happy to talk about that. It's a topic that I'm fascinated by, what's special in the Israeli military. But that's actually not the root of the reason, because we joined the military at the age of 18. 
and it's not a magical moment that happens, you know, once we, we step into the doors of the first base in military and we become no. these uh, creative thinkers, right? That's one of the things I found interesting about your book is that organizations and the affiliations that you have from preschool through the military are really all part of a very different way of being raised. So let's start with the Israeli preschool. Sure. If an American mom or dad walked into an Israeli preschool, what would they encounter in the playground area? The first thing they would encounter and, and feel is a lot of noise and chaos. It will seem in their eyes like there yeah. is a chaotic situation, kids running all over, there's no order, there's again a lot of noise. It seems very unstructured, even within the playground in the school. So I'm not even talking afternoon, I'm talking within the school um, you know, framework. They will hear kids talking to their teacher and actually addressing them in the first names, of course, asking a lot of questions, challenging them, telling them they're wrong, okay? It could be a six, seven, eight-year-old kid with, uh, of course, an, an adult professional teacher. Right. That's what they would see. It would seem in their eyes, again, like we said at the beginning, maybe a little disrespectful, chaotic, stressful, intense. But that's exactly, or even earlier than that, that's where these soft skills that are so critical to entrepreneurship are starting to be nurtured and are starting to be cultivated in a way that then in the future we see their results in the tech space. So if we'll take the example of kids questioning their teacher or challenging mm -hmm. them, for an Israeli teacher, that's the greatest success. Having any kid in their class, interrupting them and asking them questions, that's the biggest success they can have because that means that their kids are actually thinking by themselves. They're not just taking what they're taught as granted. And that might be what we think of as chutzpah here in the States, where a child steps beyond, just beyond the limits of what is appropriate in a bold way. That's kind of, I think, what we would, would define as chutzpah. And, and that's taught and encouraged as early as preschool. Yes. So I think it's less taught as, you know, it's, it's something that you can't really teach, but it's something that you can really encourage. Okay. And I think that in many other places, in a way, we communities and, and societies actually discourage that. Let me give you another very simple example. So if you'll go to an Israeli playground, and you might have read that in the book, and you, know, you, you will look at the slide, which is same structure all over the world, right? A ladder, a slide, kids love that. I grew up in Switzerland as part of my childhood, and I was really taught, by the way, I was guided as a kid, as a four-year-old kid, how to use that structure. So I was brought to the ladder and, and told that I have to wait till the other kid goes up. And then that's my cue. That's when I go up the ladder. And only when the kid in front of me is down the slide, that's my sign to go down the slide. And there's, you know, there's a rhythm to that. Makes total sense. And it's very, I would say it's like classical music. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's music to the ears. You'll go to an Israeli playground you'll see something completely different. You'll see the same slide. You'll see the same kids. They're not different originally, okay? But the way they behave with that structure, and more importantly, the way the environment around them, their teachers, their parents, their babysitters, anyone, reacts to how they behave is completely different. So in an Israeli typical uh, playground, you'd see kids going up the slide, climbing up the slide, while other kids are climbing the ladder. They're jumping over each other. 
they're blocking each other and it's fine. It's fine because they learn by themselves how to manage those risks. We don't need to overprotect them. And they, they get to know themselves better. They get to work with their friends in this way, to play with their friends. And it starts as early as two, three, four. There's a very different level of chaos and order on the Israeli playground than there is on the Swiss playground. But then again, mm-hmm. the Swiss are obsessed with order and they make very good watches. So That's true. But you know that Switzerland is, is ranked first, according to the World Economic Forum Innovations Ranking in Innovation, because they have a different type of innovation. Mm-hmm. And I think that demonstrates actually that there's no one way of doing things, right? But the Swiss innovation right. is not only in watches, it's also in pharmaceutical. And it's affecting the entire world in the pharmaceutical industry. Innovation there is conducted in a completely different way in innovation in Israel. Okay, so on a Swiss playground, there's tons of order. And on an Israeli playground, there's not just lack of what we might think of more Swiss rules, but there's also different structures. There's different equipment. One might even find what we consider to be junk on an Israeli playground. Why is junk on your playground? So it's even worse than the playground. It's actually in the kindergartens. Okay. So in the early fifties, a kindergarten teacher from the North of Israel developed this methodology, educational methodologies, which he called junkyard, which literally means a junkyard. So old, unused, real objects, screens, microwaves, tires, uh, I don't know, strollers, just phones, anything you can think of, but real objects, which are probably, you know, unused, they're malfunctioning, uh, people don't need them anymore, and ask the parents to bring them into the kindergarten. And the kids actually, in the, in the kindergarten, in the playgrounds, they have access to all these objects, some of which are very big for their size, okay? They're, again, young toddlers definitely heavy. And they're actually told that they can do whatever they want with these objects. Now, the beauty in this methodology is actually it has three different layers, or even four. The first one is that kids actually like to be part of the real world. If you would give a kid a real phone or a you know plastic phone, uh, not a real one, a toy, they would immediately go for the real thing because they always prefer, they think of themselves as part of the real world. And they always prefer to act in the framework of the real world. So her belief was, first thing, we need to make sure that these kids are actually part of the real world. So we should let them play with real life objects. But here's the twist. We adults know that a microwave has a specific application or use that we're used to. But the kids actually, not necessarily when they're that young. What if we gave them these objects? And we wouldn't tell them what they're intended for or what they sh- how they should play with them. And then suddenly, and they can do whatever they want with that. So suddenly you see kids coming up with these amazing creative ideas of, you know, uh, dragging a tire and connecting it to a screen together with a, a, a plastic bathtub of a baby. And suddenly you have their idea of a spaceship. And the third thing, so the first thing is making sure that they're part of the real world using real objects. The second thing is not limiting their imagination, their thinking of what these objects are intended for, but actually giving them complete freedom to create whatever they want from them. And the third thing is actually that they cannot do that by themselves. Because for a four or five, six-year-old to to drag a, a tire of a car is super heavy. And no kid can do that by themselves. So what they would need to do is someone to help them. 
Mm. And kids, actually, if there's an environment of children and you don't, again, guide them too much, their intuition, their comfort zone would be actually not to address, to ask the teacher to help them, but actually to ask each other. The open play encourages collaboration. And- collaboration, again, risk management, creativity, and all of that while providing them with a very strong sense of them belonging to the real world. There seems that you give children responsibility far earlier mm-hmm. in life and ask more of them far earlier in life than much of the rest of the world does. Again, it, it's kind of a, you know the, th- the same thread line that continues as they grow. And yes, they are expected to do more. Uh, most Israeli kids walk to school by themselves and go back home by themselves, mm-hmm. even as early as six or seven. Um, wow. And it's totally fine in Israel. In some states in the U.S., it's not even legal to leave a, a kid by himself at home. In some states, until the age of 14. Yes. Um, in Israel, it's, it's very custom to see kids walking in the streets by themselves or in groups. And with that independence comes a lot of responsibility. I thought of this earlier this morning as I was cutting the crust off my eight-year-old daughter's toast and brushing my 10-year-old son's hair while he ate breakfast. I thought, would Inbal or any Israeli parent do this? Um, you know, probably not. <laughs> probably not because it's, uh, um, I mean, your eight-year-old can definitely brush, you know, his hair by himself, right? I mean... Oh, he can. He can. He just doesn't uh, so, want to, nor is he excited about it. Right. But, you know, um, it's not, this freedom is not about no boundaries at all, right? Mm-hmm. It's not about telling them, oh, you can do whatever you want. Eventually, they're, they're nine-year-old kids, so you have to help them understand the world better. Uh, but I'm sure that if you set the expectations right with your kid and tell him that, listen, there's no, you can't go to school without brushing your hair. Or you can't go mm. out of the home to a restaurant with me or to meet your friends without brushing the, your hair. And it's your responsibility to do that. Maybe he'll say, he, you know, he'll disagree in the first or second time, but eventually he'll understand that that's just the way it works. I do think that kids, the more they're empowered to do things by themselves, they actually like to do that. So not only, you know, spreading butter on, on the toast, but why don't let your kids cut a salad? or tomatoes, or or cucumbers. I don't know. Uh, A lot of kids don't like to eat vegetables, but once you let them cook or prepare the food, they they eat it. So there are a lot of ways of creating that empowerment and and Mm -hmm. giving them responsibility according to their age. But I think in general, kids at any age are capable of so much more than we, the adults, think they Mm -hmm. are. I think it's more of your convenience, I, just as an example, of course, right, without uh, understanding the whole dynamic. But I think adults sometimes overprotect kids just because it gives them comfort and confidence um, that they're controlling the situation. Or convenience. It's easier in the short run to brush my right. son's hair or tie his shoes than it is to ask him to do it himself. And in the long run, I'm just infantilizing him and uh, setting him up for a life of failure and misery because I'm a lazy parent. That's like, yeah, you, you, you're very dramatic there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally dramatic and, and completely <laughs> intentional. Do children get participation trophies for sports in Israel? So the whole sports concept in Israel is very, here at school, I mean, sport is important, but not as much as in the U.S. They might get a trophy, but it's really not that competitive track um, that all kids have to go through 
it's done in a completely different way. And it's it's really more about practicing the sport than, you know, the, the competitions and having to choose the team sport versus the individual sport. I know there's, I have a lot of friends, parent friends in the U.S. and they're, especially this time of year, right, before the school year, they're really concerned about their kids and what sports they'll choose and what it will mean about their future in school. Are boys and girls raised pretty much the same? I know that both teenage girls and teenage boys have to join the military when they turn 18, but is the culture of how they're raised in the home similar, or are there more defined traditional gender roles? Well, it really depends to mm-hmm. which community you're you're part of in Israel. I think that in the you know the secular families, you, you would see that it's relatively the same. Not to say, and definitely there are again, like in all societies, all Western or almost all Western societies in the world, there are some um, mm. social different expectations in a sense. Not that they're right, but just uh, it, it exists. Actually, when you look at the statistics of um, the tech ecosystem in Israel you see really the mirror, the, the same image as in Silicon Valley. So only 20% of the founders in tech are female founders, a very small percentage of female investors, only 35% of female executives, C-level executives in the large companies here in Israel. And the situation is relatively same to the Silicon Valley. However, I have to say that if you look at the trend over the course of the past years, or past decades, what's changing? You, you, you see improvement. Well, a lot of uh, mm-hmm. much more, I think, awareness, right? So that's one thing. And the second thing, uh, more and more role models, it comes together. So the more you see female speakers on stage, the more younger women want to join the tech space. Um, there are more activities focused on, on females, helping them to penetrate into the ecosystem. Um, so you'll have organizations like She Codes, which is which also exists, of course, in the U.S., which is very active here in Israel. Different networking sessions, accelerators focused on women, just to give them another. It's not a distinguished environment, but it's kind of another boost to show them that it's possible. And that's something that exists more and more in the recent years. I'm happy to be mentor, a mentor and a board member in different mm. such organizations. and to You see- made a clarification earlier when I asked you about different gender roles about secular versus religious. And religious would mean either ultra-Orthodox or Arab Israelis or other more religiously specific groups inside of Israel. Are the general trends you're talking about, the way children are raised in Israel, are you speaking on behalf of the more secular Jewish community in Israel? Great question. And, and yes, uh, I'm speaking more on behalf of the typical secular you know, mm-hmm. family or, or person in Israel. But many of the elements that I talk about in chutzpah in the book actually are relevant in different ways to different mm. um, minorities, if you want. Uh, but they would be distinguished between the, the groups. So let me give you an example. For Israeli Arabs, again, mm-hmm. of course, we're speaking in generalities here, so I'm very careful. But it, for Israeli Arabs, for example, respect and failure are top concerns. In their culture, these are top concerns. And so one of the constraints, if you want, or the barriers for these, for that community to be part of the tech ecosystem, the innovation and entrepreneurship one, is their approach to failure. Because as we know, most entrepreneurs actually, their, their ventures fail, right? About 90% of them fail. 
So you have to be, in a sense, uh, failure tolerant. And in the secular culture in Israel, it's existent, uh, much more, by the way, than in the U.S. or in Europe or definitely in Asia. However, in the Israeli-Arab one, that's a, a concern. And then the ultra-Orthodox have their own elements um, that are slightly different. And both, by the way, do not serve in the military, again, in generality, and hence lack the networks to later on wow. be part of the ecosystem. This brings up a really important point, and that is what's unique about Israel as a country, and that you have a history unlike any other country in the world, you have very distinct populations, and you exist amidst many neighboring countries who don't believe Israel has a right to exist. So how does the constant threat of war and terrorism affect how you raise your kids and how that manifests? And how does that manifest in a world of innovation and entrepreneurship? There are two main consequences of that that are relevant. The first is the fact that Israel, because of its history, right, is a country of immigrants. Um, we have more than 70 nationalities represented here. Each Israeli person, their parents are actually from different places around the world, ranging from, you know, Africa, Middle East, Europe, North America, everywhere. So that by itself creates a society which is an entrepreneurial one. Immigrants all over the world are pockets of entrepreneurship because they have to reinvent themselves. And in Israel, everyone was or their parents were immigrants. So that's one thing. And, and that has a lot of, I would say, um, it influences many other things, such as cross-pollination of ideas or having a very rich palette of you know, different approaches to things, different backgrounds. So it really influences. So that's one thing. The second thing is actually the fact that as you grow in Israel, you understand, whether you're told or just by, you know, living here, that the only certain thing, the only certain thing that exists in Israel hmm. is uncertainty. You're telling me this in a week where there's rockets mm -hmm. flying back and forth. Exactly. So real, real story. Yesterday night, we, we were watching the news. I mean, the north border uh, with Lebanon is, is somehow warm now. The south border is always warm and we've had rockets last week on both areas. So, and we live in Tel Aviv, which is, you know, safe. That one of you, we talked mm. about that. One of the coolest cities in the world, a great city, very safe. But we, we had a conversation yesterday with our 10-year-old telling him, do you remember what you have to do if there's a, a siren and we're not home? Because we're expecting that this might be an option. It could happen. We'll probably be at work or I don't know. And, and it's, we still have a week of vacation. He might be at home or with his friends or outside. And just making sure, do you know what you have to do? Not from panic, not from stress, just as part of our reality. And, and to provide him confidence with, the, with you know, his behavior if something like that happens. And he's 10-year-old. That notion of living in a place where uncertainty is the main element around you, for an outsider, it might actually seem stressful. For someone living that way and growing up that way, again, it trains, it cultivates your capability to face the unknown, to adapt, um, and, and to reinvent yourself constantly. Fast forward, tech ecosystem, innovation, entrepreneurship, 
it's all about facing the unknown, right? Think you know things, you think how the market would react to your business, you think how investors would react to your business proposal, but then you face reality. If you're not trained in adapting to changing circumstances, which by the way, I think we see all over the world today, but if you're not trained in, in adapting to those, you might freeze and panic. And I think that's maybe the most important soft element that Israeli talent, kids from a young age to later on, possess, uh, which is priceless in my opinion. Uh, almost all Israeli children know that they're going to be drafted into the IDF when they turn 18, and they live with this uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Do you think they mature more quickly than children of other countries? Yes, definitely. I think that because of all of the things we've mentioned, including empowering them, remember, including giving them a lot of responsibility, living in an uncertain environment and adapting to it. Um, yes, I think they mature earlier. And I'm not the first to say that if you compare a, a 23-year-old, sure. again, we're generalizing here, of course, uh, but uh, you know, an average 23-year-old Israeli that has gone through the military, is working in a startup, um, and you would compare them to the same age persona in, in other countries, they will be more mature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean they will be more successful, okay, of course, but it means they're more mature. It means they're they're willing to take more responsibility. They're, they're thinking bigger. They're not afraid of consequences of decision-making. They know how to motivate and work with other people. These are all things that they've, they've done in the past. So, yes. Does this change the dynamic on college admissions? You know, just recently here in the States, we had this mm-hmm. whole scandal about parents breaking the law yes. and bribing people to get their kids into the right college. As I was reading your book, you didn't say this, but it seems to me like you're far more reasonable about the role of college in your children's lives. And it's not that it's not a big deal. It's just sort of there's less hysteria around the whole process. Well, definitely, because of, I would say, in my opinion, again, two main reasons. One is the military, because at 18, when you go to college, we go to the military. And by 21, 22, or 23, when we leave the military, we're adults, right? We're not that 17-year-old kid that leaves for home for the first time, and, and their parents feel that you know any decision they will make now will affect their entire life. Mm-hmm. So the fact that we have that few years in the military, in between childhood and adolescence, and then adulthood, and definitely the military service is a, a maturing experience. Right. So I think that's the main reason. That's one reason. I mean, by 23, your parents can't really affect what you're mm-hmm. doing. It's, it's but the second thing I think relates to the, what we talked about before. I agree that with, with your conclusion that in general, a lot of decisions here are regarded as, you know, in proportions and much more reasonable in a sense because of the, you know, the environment that we live in. So we have proportions and thinking of the future. I mean, if you look at the, uh, for example, the World Economic Forums, um, they have a report about the skills for the future, the emerging skills, the new ones. So you'll see that most of the skills are actually not the typical things you learn in university or in college. It's not about knowledge anymore. It's much more about creative thinking, uh, critical thinking, decision making, complex problem solving, leadership and social influence. These are the soft skills. These are the skills that our kids 
my kids, your kids will need in their future. And now comes this question. So how much does college influence those skills? Right. How much is it relevant? Is college less of a four-year party that's just seen as, as a rite of passage in the United States and more of a really, hey, you're going there for a reason to learn something and get a skill that you're going to use in the future as part of your career and contribution to the country? Yes, definitely. Um, not even contribution to the country, even just to yourself. Again, remember, on average, you're about 22 years old. Okay, so you don't you not only go to college here, but at the same time you work mm. because you don't want to live with your parents anymore. You want to <laughs> rent a, an apartment with with friends. You need to to work. You need so you work uh, on a side work, but that's like your first job. And yes, you focus in a very practical manner on you know completing studies. You're at a different age. You know better what what interests you. It's easier for yourself to make decisions. Do I really want to be uh, you know, a lawyer? Or am I doing that just so I can meet the expectations of my parents? Is that really what I want to do in life? At 22, 23, you're much more connected to yourself. You know much more about yourself and what your preferences are. And how do you envision your own future versus how your parents do? So you're very, we say in Hebrew, tachles. Tachles means goal-oriented, bottom line. You think of this whole college or university experience in a much more practical way. We talked over email about how this, this show really isn't about entrepreneurship or innovation. It's about money and happiness and how our different types of relationships with money lead us to happiness or lead us to make mistakes or do the right thing. Do your children get allowance? One of them does. Two others, no, because they're, uh, they get it on a, on a need-to-use you know, basis. So it differs from one kid to the other. Based on their personality also. How do you think about that? What goes into the decision-making process? I would say it's the... Well, first, I'm pro-giving them you know, a budget so they can manage it. I think it teaches them, even mm-hmm. as, as young as six or seven, and it can be something very you know, minor, it's just getting them acquainted with that world, that monetary uh, understanding and starting to understand uh, relativeness of things. So that's one thing. Then it really differs from one child to the other. So we don't have a, a guideline for that. It, it depends on how responsible they are, on how, you know, what they're spending their money on. So that would also influence how we manage that. But generally speaking, I think, in my opinion, it's very important to start educate kids from uh, children from a young age to understand the, the mechanism of, of money in the world, especially girls, by the way. I feel that one of the um, challenges that women have in tech, in the tech industry, but not limited to the tech industry, is how convenient they feel talking about money, requesting money, okay, understanding that their value can be somehow translated into currency in terms of professionalism, of course, and expertise. We see that I see that a lot of interviews, uh, you know, work interviews where you would have the same women, the same. I, I mean, in terms of qualities and, and expertise and background and potential, female candidate, male candidate, they would typically come with different expectations. For example, what kind of expectations? How do their expectations differ? Well, in terms of levels of ex- of salary expectations, I see the women would probably ask less than than the men, the man candidate. Does that have to do with how they were raised? Well, first, it's not an Israeli problem, by the way. It's it's a social, like, Western world problem. 
-hmm. and, and it also has, I think it, it's not directed connectedly to how they were ra raised in general, but it's the fact that you'll see less young girls involved in conversations that relate to money. And again, their, their general approach, I can include myself in that, by the way, as a young professional, I was totally there until I realized that, that it doesn't make sense. There's no reason for that. So I think it's more about social expectations and the way women see social expectations and translate social expectations that not necessarily exist. In Israel, um, if we're talking about you know, gender-related issues, so because of the economical situation here, actually, both partners work. Right. Again, typical Israeli family, uh, you'd have both partners work. But here's the interesting thing. That's fine. That's not surprising. We also have the highest birth rate in the OECD countries even within secular families, with 2.7 kids on average per family. We are a very kid-centric society, okay? Family is, is very important in the Israeli um, culture. So you'll have these families where both partners go out and work. They have between two and three kids. School ends at 1, 1.30 p.m. That's it, done. And now, good luck. And so this uh, notion of raising your children to be independent from a very early age empowers the home, where in America we might call those latchkey kids who are seen as unsupervised and maybe even neglected, mm -hmm. that in Israel, because of the way you raise your kids, it's like, hey, mom and dad are at work. That's just how it is. Exactly. You take care of yourself. You take care of yourself. You're not neglected, by the way, although some grandmothers <laughs> would say that this is how, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but you're completely right. And when everyone around you or almost everyone around you behaves in the same way, it becomes a social norm. So it's not regarded as neglection here in Israel, of course. Okay. And it's, that's the social norm. And kids sometimes, you know, they spend time with each other. We don't manage play dates for them. We don't even plan in advance. They do their own scheduling and meetings. Well, that's Even the, as young as seven or eight. Of course you don't do it. It's the nanny's job. The nanny is supposed to coordinate the play day. Huh. <laughs> you mentioned the OECD. <laughs> let's let's jump into savings. Data. According to OECD data, uh, Israel has a 12.3% savings rate. Now, that is, I think, number 11 in the world. And if you compare that to the United States' abysmal 4.1% rate, wow. it's pretty darn good. Now, compared to China's 47% rate, hmm. it's still lagging. But what do you teach your kids about saving? I think the main reason for that, these statistics, by the way, is related to the, um, not leftovers, but some of the building blocks of the economical culture here in Israel of pension. So Israel, in some aspects, is a social country where we have education for free, healthcare for free, and pension is, is a topic or manager's insurance, however you want to call it, that has been from the beginning of the establishment of the state of Israel something that everyone does. And I think that is what effect, is affecting these numbers. So everyone in Israel, the minute they go out of the military and they start their new job, they will start saving a relative proportion of their salary. Everybody does that. It, it feels very natural. It's just the way it works. So I, I don't think it really, I don't feel it relates or influences the education. It's not something which is really spoken. It's just, again, a norm, a very positive one. But debt is actually, household debt is increasing everywhere in the world, but also increasing in Israel. Is this due to the economic situation on the ground there? So um, in general, by the way, Israeli economy is, is relatively stable in, in the past years and, and keeps growing. But, you know, the, the, 
Um, you see more Israelis traveling abroad. Mm-hmm. You see more Israelis buying more. Okay. By the way, not necessarily in Israel, but thanks to Amazon, uh, we all have access <laughs> to everything in You're the welcome. world. You're welcome. You're uh, welcome. Yes. By the way, Amazon just started its its first not R and D activity, but business activity with a warehouse here in Israel. So that would even increase um, <laughs> the spending there. So you probably you probably um, got the ones they didn't want in New York City. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> But um, Amazon, by the way, if we're talking about Amazon, Amazon is also responsible for the crazy increase in um, programmers' salaries in Israel because they opened a, a large R&D office, one of more than 300 that exists here in Israel of multinationals, Facebook, Amazon, Google, mm-hmm. Apple. They all have R&D offices in Israel, and they can spend much more on local talent, which they want to do, than a typical Israeli company or startup. How do people feel about that? I think it's it's uh, you know it's a dual feeling. On on one on one hand, the presence of these more than three hundred multinationals plays a very important role in in a sense the training that the Israeli talent, which they're interested in by by beginning, but when Israeli professionals, programmers, coders join these companies, they're actually working for the you know the, the biggest tech companies in the world learning their best practices, but they're doing that from Israel. They don't have to travel to Silicon Valley for that. Again, more than 300. They're all here in Israel, in tiny Israel, competing by themselves over that talent. So on one hand, it's regarded as as a very good advantage of the local industry. The disadvantage is is that competition, which create an increase in, in salaries and a shortage in the human capital that exists or that is needed today in the ecosystem. But surprisingly... What you would see here in Israel is that the the typical Israeli entrepreneur is 35 years old, has worked an average of six years in one of these multinationals before they started their own startup. So they went to the military, the typical one, went to the military on average four, four and a half, five years, more than the mandatory time. They then went to university for another three years, three and a half years, four years, depending what they studied. They then worked on average six years in one of those multinationals and only then started their own startup. So what you actually see is that, and by the way, when they started their startup, their salaries dropped down Mm, while they were already having a family. Sure. Because if you do the math, right? And the reason for that is actually that eventually, after all, the, the entrepreneurial bug is so strong here that a lot of people are just giving up on working for these multinationals with huge salaries and benefits, and they can't help themselves. They just want to start something of their own. When you see people taking these big salaries as engineers at Amazon or having success as entrepreneurship, does that manifest in materialism and sort of conspicuous consumption? No, not really. So you won't see it here in Israel, uh, tech founders, successful ones, you know, driving Teslas. Or, hey, uh, what's other, wrong? Uh, what's wrong with the Tesla? No, there's nothing. There's nothing wrong with <laughs> Tesla. But if you know, if you'll know the uh, is uh, the opposite. The Israeli. So there are a few things here. Israel is a small country. Yes. Uh, with relatively bad infrastructure, um, not just the roads, but but many other things. The tech ecosystem is kind of a, an isolated, floating economy, mm. and you won't really see these found. You don't have places to. You don't have islands here. You don't have. There's no need of having a jet 
It doesn't make sense. What? Okay. Yeah, because where would you go with your jet? <laughs> right. I mean, if you want to go to the U.S., if you want to travel to the U.S., the jet is just not, uh, you know. Very little friendly airspace uh, surrounding you. Right, exactly. So these things, from a practical reason first, are just not, you know, not that relevant. But there's more to that. There's a cultural addition to that. And that is that it's just not part of what motivates Israelis, including in the inventions, including in the innovation, and it might sound, you know, very naive, but that's the way it is, is making a change, is really changing something in the world. And that's more, more important to them. So success would be more about creating that change than, I don't know, living in a huge mansion with uh, a Ferrari and a jet. So status comes from accomplishment more so than it does from the money itself. Exactly. Status would come from accomplishments. You also need to remember, we, in a sense, we all served in the military together. Mm -hmm. And the military is a melting pot of the entire Israeli society. So status come from the actual things you do, from the actual way you behave. Right. And that's actually remembered for a long time. Although, and that's one of the, again, the, the most positive elements of society here is that even if you've failed, that's totally fine. So although status comes from accomplishments, it doesn't mean that if you've failed, you're burned. Right. You talk about how people are more comfortable saying what in other cultures might be uncomfortable saying. Do Israelis talk openly about money? Yes, yes, yes. They talk openly about money. They would even sh even share their you know salary numbers with friends and 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 their their close network. They would talk about investment. Yes, they talk openly about money. Again, I think that generally speaking, gets less of an important or critical importance in, in their lives. So yes, they do. Israelis are very, what we call dugri. Dugri is actually an Arabic world, but it, but it means very straightforward. Mm. Excuse me for my language, but no bullshit. Oh, inbal. This is okay. a family <laughs> show. How dare you? Oh, <laughs> so they will just, you know, they will say um, reality, how, how the way they see it, very open. Um, we're very close relationship in terms of relations. So um, the joke is that if, I mean, if you'll go into an Israeli elevator, um, an, an elevator in an Israeli building, you'll overhear like anything, starting from medical situations of people through their financial right. uh, situation, <laughs> mar marriage, everything. Like people are just talking. <laughs> well, you know, you talked earlier about the different expectations of women and some of the women executives that I've interviewed here talk about, they encourage transparency in conversations and for the women in their organizations to find out how much the men are making. You know, I, I just wondered if that transparency around salary might result in and women being more upfront about what they expect or about having more knowledge about what the norms are? Well, it, it definitely helps, you know, when, when it exists. Um, I think what, what then stops them is, is not the knowledge. It's, it's you know, they're, they're in, a, in a way, their lack of courage mm. to come and say, I should get the same. Right. Okay? And again, that also is changing. That yes. also is changing. Yes. What do you think Americans can learn from Israelis about not just raising kids, but about life and their relationship with money? Well, I think that maybe one of the most important things could be 
And while making long-term plans, okay, and, and taking on lo- long-term commitments and preparing for the long-term through savings, for example, to always keep, keep a very agile approach to everything you do, including, of course, the, the uh, financial management. So whether it's moving from one, you know, house to the other, from one apartment to the other, from one neighborhood to the other, everything. In a sense, I feel that agility, that mind, that agile mindset um, that Israelis have influences also the way they manage their financial situation. Agility can be hampered when you're, you have too many material possessions or when you're spending beyond your means. So part of agility has to be leading more of a lean life, right? Leading more of a lean life you know, focusing on what's really important to you. Um, There are so many studies about the value of material, you know, tangible things we buy versus experiences we have. Um, I think one of the things that Israelis are very strong at is actually having on a daily basis, definitely on a family basis and with friends, a lot of experiences, okay? And, And that creates a completely different value in life. Um, it's, a, like I said before, a very family-oriented community. It's a very friend-oriented community. There are very strong ties here between people. And that creates a lot of fulfillment, which replaces the need for other things, right? So I think that's also something that people should be aware of. Replace some of their tangible material acquisition into experiences. I don't know, Inbal. My Tesla keeps me warm at night. <laughs> All right. Well, that's I'm I, I'm in favor. That's totally I'm totally in favor. Inbal, <laughs> <laughs> where can our listeners find out more about you? Chutzpahcenter.com is my blog. It's connected to my blog, and and I publish more information there. I'm also a contributor on Forbes. Um, I have a swim lane called "From Special Forces to the Boardroom," which actually explains the connectivity between special forces in the military and how that applies to the business world at agilesynthesis.com, company, leadership assessment and development. And of course, the book. So Chutzpah, Why Israel is a Hub of Innovation and Entrepreneurship, published by Harper Business. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Paul. And you know, I'm looking forward to seeing you here in Tel Aviv. I can't wait. I can't wait. Most importantly, when does season three of Fauda premiere? (laughs) Oh, so I I don't know the exact date. We're going to have to find that out. But you know what? If you'll come to Tel Aviv, I'll arrange a surprise for you. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. That's like, yeah, now you have to kind of live with uncertainty. What is that surprise? But I can promise it's a good one. Awesome. Thanks, Inbal. (laughs) Have a great evening. Thank you so much, Paul. Bye-bye. Thank you very much, Inbal. I greatly appreciate you sharing insights to your culture with me and my listeners. By the way, after we turned off record, Inbal and I discussed the show Fauda, F-A-U-D-A, that is on Netflix, season three coming out before too long. And they're not paying me to say this, but I love that show. I wish it was in English. I got to tell you that because sometimes reading, you know, the footnotes, they're not called footnotes. What are they called? Subtitles. (laughs) Oh dear. Uh, Sometimes reading the subtitle gets a little wearisome, but that show is awesome. You should check it out. I'm coming to Tel Aviv and we're going to do the Fauda tour. And well, thank you again. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, I really appreciate you listening. Please do me the greatest honor you could by not living the best life you can, but by actually subscribing to this podcast, sharing it with a friend, 
and giving some stars, some ratings on that there podcast app that you're using to listen to my voice. Stars, reviews, subscribe. That's what I'm asking. Thank you very much to Mike Carano, editor, producer extraordinaire. See you later. Bye.